Welcome to the Thomas Industry Update Podcast, actionable information for industry leaders. Hi, I'm Kathy Ma. I'm Sean Fitzgerald. And I'm Tony Uphoff. A search for artificial intelligence shows over 780 million results. People are clearly interested in AI, but many of us are still searching for answers. Today's Thomas Industry Update podcast guest is one of the leading experts on AI, but more than understanding the technology, Paul Doherty is focused on the application of AI and how it can and is radically and irrevocably transforming business. Based on his experience and research with over 1,500 organizations, Paul and his co-author James Wilson wrote the book Human Plus Machine, Work in the Age of AI. This book and the practical, inspiring best practices it outlines quite honestly have transformed the way we work here at thomasnet.com. It was also my most gifted book of 2020. Hey, Paul, welcome to the Thomas Industry Update podcast. Thanks very much for joining us. Yeah, it's great to be here, Tony. I look forward to the conversation. And by the way, it was my most gifted book that year as well. So we have that again. <laughs> great. We have something in common already. Hey, Paul, to give a little bit of a framework. You, you have kind of a remarkable uh, vantage point to see not just AI, but digital transformation and the work that you do at Accenture. Describe your position a little bit and some of the work that, that you're involved in. Yeah, that's no, a good question. So uh, I work for Accenture, which is the largest technology services uh, firm, you know, in the world. And, uh, you know, what we do is we help businesses apply technology to make their businesses, you know, work better. Uh, our purpose, our vision, our purpose is to, uh, is to, uh, you know, help deliver on the promise of technology and human ingenuity. So this, that's in our purpose, you know, technology and human ingenuity. And it's fundamentally at, at where my interest lies and where the book lies and where a lot of the work we do at Accenture lies, you know, my, my role at Accenture is, um, is a group chief executive of technology and chief technology officer. There's there's two two roles, and in those roles, I'm responsible for our technology business at Accenture, which is about um, it's about 26 billion dollars of the of the you know, 40 you know 45 billion dollars of Accenture. So it's a lot of what we do, and it's helping companies apply technology to to, to do things better, like we say. And in that CTO role, my role has is to look out at what's coming with technology. And I, I run our research and development, our labs, uh, our venture portfolio, and a variety of things that help us see it, you know, look ahead, and then create the businesses of the future. And that's how we came into artificial intelligence and cloud and Internet of Things and even quantum computing. A lot of the technologies that are that are either big today or you know important in understanding and interpreting the future. Yeah, you know, Paul, it's interesting. We, I, I'm, a, I'm a believer, if you will, that digital transformation should lead to ultimately business model transformation. And, and to your point that you're making here of your work at Accenture is that, you know, we've, we've gone past the kind of tech for tech's sake or tech for incremental kind of, in, you know, efficiency's sake. And we're starting to move into a different era. You know, talk a little bit more about how you work with customers to focus on innovation and, and help clients understand what digital transformation means, but, but how to get a little closer to using it to literally transform your business. Yeah, yeah we, uh, back in 2013, uh, I wrote a report. We have an annual technology vision and the title of it that year th that I wrote was called Every Business is a, 
digital business. Every business is a digital business. And back then it was, it was interesting. I remember spending a lot of that year defending it <laughs> to people who were saying, you know, we're not, you know, we're, uh, we're, whatever we are, we're, uh, we're an energy company or whatever, whatever we are, we're not digital. And, uh, but pretty quickly, you know, digital became, you know, the, the thing. And that's, and that's what really drove our business from that, you know, from that time, 2013 onward. And we, we kind of invested a lot and built a, you know, built up a lot of capability in digital. And it was fundamentally around, you know, to answer your question, so what does it mean to, to companies? You know, digital transformations, it, it's about, you know, technology and enabling technology that you use to create channels with customers in different ways or, or to increase your manufacturing efficiency. But, it, but it's also about the culture that you create in the organization of, you know, to work differently, uh, in a more agile, innovative way. And it, it's about the, the operating model in companies to think about how you do business differently as you move forward. For example, you know, this is one example, as, as you look at a company like, uh, like Marriott, uh, for example, the lodging business, as they thought about their digital transformation, they made a move to think about the platforms, the way they serve customers differently. They started thinking about experience versus you know, versus lodging, and they they launched uh, you know, home suites, which was a, you know, a, an alternative or a competitor to Airbnb, and that's the the kind of broad transformation that we see in, and that we help you know companies undertake as they as they you know, move through digital transformation. Well, it's a great example, and and again, not to overuse the phrase, but that idea of business transformation or that that, that comes from digital transformation is really important. You know, I know that that there, there's uh, the vision report, the 2021 report that Accenture Technology puts out. And, you know, there's a term in there that I caught called masters of change. And, and you know, the, the idea of defining the future. Talk a little bit more about that. And, and I think there's some fundamental steps that you outlined in there about, you know, how, how can businesses set themselves up to become masters of change? Talk, talk a little about that process. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll set the stage. I'll try to do this quickly, but I'll set the stage for how we got there, you know, how we got to this masters of change idea. And I, I, I don't, you know, I don't think you can look at the world today without thinking about how the last year changed everything we do you know we're about a little over a year out from covid and all the implications of covid it wasn't just covid there was concerns about systemic uh social injustice and racism there were political chasms that were unprecedented there were you know climate considerations wildfires i mean it was a a crazy year in many respects and there were all the memes around you know know, the the year and how eager people were to put this the last year behind them but it it had i would say three fundamental effects as we as i you know i look at it we look at what it means going forward. The first is it fundamentally transformed human experience. And I call these three new realities that we need to incorporate in our thinking. So transformed human experience, billions of people changed what they do almost instantaneously, never before happened in human civilization. Every other change played out over a long period of time. So think about that. And you know you can see it in you know the, the amount of people who use online grocery shopping doubled in weeks telehealth visits for primary care up 350 times and you know everybody learning kids you know, learning via you know, means like we're talking on today um, and so, so human experience is, is a dramatic change in human experience that we haven't yet fully caught up with is the first new reality the second new reality is that uh, a little modification on what I said earlier every business realized that they're a technology business technology was the lifeline that kept things going if this had happened even you know, less than five years previously, it would have been far more devastating than it was, you know, in terms of the impact that it had. And um, you can see this playing out in many ways, and I'll, I'll come back to it in a minute. Um, 
And, uh, and it means you have to think about technology differently and, and the relationship between technology and being a digital company. And the third change is an, or third new reality is an obvious one where work is never going to be the same. You know, work will be virtualized and uh, done in a very different way uh, going forward in more of this hybrid style that, that uh, we believe in and many have been talking about. So those three new realities are there. Then, then it's, you know, then you mentioned this uh, masters of change point that, that in our vision. So we wrote our vision. We we're thinking deeply about these new realities. And that what, what struck us is the this is COVID and these changes hit a fast forward button, fast forwarded us into the future. And we're living in a different reality defined by these new realities, but businesses and, you know, we, a lot of us haven't caught up yet. And that's why this Masters of Change idea is important because as you think about the role of technology going forward, we used to think of technology as the outcome. If the bills go out, if the paychecks are produced, whatever, that's good enough. doesn't matter how it happened. Going forward, technology becomes a platform of change because it's the enabler of the digital transformation that companies are driving. So you need leaders you know, who can understand how to drive change. It's about how your workforce and your technology workforce and your business workforce enable change. How do you create technology platforms that are adaptable to change rather than static? That is really the core idea at the heart of the, the vision uh, this year. We also say masters of change, but at a moment of truth, because we think it is a moment of truth because there's this compressed transformation happening now. And I can talk more about it, but we saw dramatic acceleration and change in how companies were moving to digital during COVID in the past year. And so we're at a moment of truth now where it's the time that you really, you really have to get it right to secure the right future. Paul, our audience is gonna be most interested in your understanding of, I don't wanna call them emerging technologies because they have emerged and certainly artificial intelligence is here, it's here now, is you know a broad-based manufacturing and industrial audience. Some are, are, are gonna be folks and may well be customers of Accenture that are pretty far down the road. Others are just beginning the journey. Others are probably, in all candor, you know, closing their eyes and covering their ears because they don't want to have to step into AI. I want to center the conversation on that. But before we go forward, you use the term, as many of us do, hybrid, nature of work. Just a curious you know, future of work question for you. Will eventually the term hybrid go away and it's just work? Right. And and and, you know, where, where do you see and, and perhaps an unfair question, but just curious, where do you see if you run the math on the trends that you're seeing and the data that you're available to? Where do you see that playing out, this kind of idea of future of work? Great question. And yeah, I think you know, ultimately, like a lot of things, hybrid will fall away and we'll just be working different. Um, I think hybrid, we're using it as a qualifier to just say it's not going to be the way it was. Um, some people say new normal, never normal, what have you, but it's, it's that idea. Uh, so we have over 500,000 people in total across Accenture. So it's something we think about a lot. You know, we have a lot of people and, uh, you know, how they work is going to be very, very important. Um, and uh, the, the way we think about it is, is in, in what, we, what we're doing is we're virtualizing everything we can do so, so it doesn't need to be done via in-person work. So we're virtualizing everything. We've proven we can do that. We're working... You know, we, we're doing everything we, we did pre-COVID, uh, even more. We're, our business is growing we're, because of new demands clients have, and it's working just fine with everything being virtualized. We've developed new tools and new ways of working so we can do that seamlessly. So we'll, we'll, everything will be virtualized, and then you'll choose the moments of value 
for people to come together. People need to come together to create culture. They need to come together to create relationships, you know, within a company. They need to come together, you know, with, with customers, you know, to create some of the relationships you need. Yes, you can do virtual selling. You can do these things remotely, but uh, we are we're human beings and human beings, you know, value doing certain things together. Our employees, you know, are, you know, but, but it will be done more based on the value to the individual and the value to the organization. Our, our, our people are telling us they value the ability to have more flexibility in how they work and where they work. And our work processes will let them do that. Our clients are telling us they value us having more flexibility in how and where we deploy teams and how much they need to be on site. And so that's what hybrid means to us is virtualize it all and then give the the employees and the, the and the customers flexibility on how and when you bring that together to create, you know, to create the real value. Yeah, really well said. I think this is an area that is um, that, that it, you know, everybody has a stake in this. There is no one industry that's wrestling with what you and I are talking about right now. And I think it affects so many different industries and businesses. So uh, re really, really appreciate your thoughts on that. Well, just one thing I'll mention, Tony, on that front, because, it, it is, um, you know, when you think about the businesses a lot of your listeners are in, you know, industrialized businesses, that it's real things, <laughs> you know, and you need real people with those real, real things and real processes to make it work, you know, uh, assembly processes, uh, factories, whatever, you know, and, and the likes, uh, the logistics and such. And, um, and I think that'll be, uh, you know, it will need, you know, people doing all those things, but it'll be done in, in some different ways. It's, there's a lot of opportunity to apply technology in different ways, to your point on emerging technology. I've got my uh, Oculus virtual reality headset right here that I just used for a, for a meeting. And we've used, we've used that technology to onboard and train people in different ways. We're using it to onboard our own employees to immerse them in our company. We've used technology like HoloLens from Microsoft to do remote plant inspections. So somebody used to travel to do a plant inspection on the other side of the world can't do that now, but you can do, you know, it, it's, it's technology that, you know, some customers were already piloting and now there's a business, you know, business case to do it. When the client who was doing that work with us actually said, you know, we had this on the shelf, but there wasn't really a business case or imperative to do it, but COVID gave us the business case for the innovation to drive the change in our processes and make it more digital. And I think that was a, a great quote from the, from, from, a, from a, one of our clients on, as to how you know, COVID spurred some of these changes that you know, we've been thinking about, but hadn't accelerated to that pace. Look, forced innovation is still innovation. And I, and I think sometimes we don't think about as we, you know, we tend to sanitize history and we look backwards and realized a lot of innovation either came out of desperation, you know, some tinker that the business was gonna go under. You know, look at the history of a company like Intel. You know, and, you know, that innovation was spurned by, hey, our core business is going to become defunct. How do we innovate our way through this? So I, I think looking at a, at a pandemic as a as a forcing function of innovation, I think is um, I, I think there's we're just beginning to tell these t these tales. And I think it is, you know, uh, it, it's going to be a, a big accelerant. And another great one. Sorry to interrupt you. Another great one is. Um is, uh, you know, Alibaba, the story of Alibaba, the, the, the amazing, successful Chinese, you know, uh, Chinese company, uh, their, their growth spurt was really around the SARS epidemic, you know, is when the, when their business and business model really, really took off to your point of sometimes these types of circumstances are what really catalyze uh, innovation and innovative model and, and catalyze the you know, consumers or customers to pick up on, on these new models. Not to be glib about it, and I always, you know, there's so many people that are attributed with the quote I'm about to make from Churchill to, to other folks, but, but you know, the, the don't waste a good crisis has become repeated often, I think, over the last year. And I hear this a lot, sometimes said tongue in cheek, but I think, you know, there's a, a component there. 
Hey, is, is, you know, one, one of the things that I saw, and boy, anytime somebody uses the phrase unlock five trillion in economic growth, it's a headline that tends to get my attention very rapidly. All kidding aside, you, you all do some remarkable analysis and research into markets. And I know your future ready organizational um, uh, dynamics around getting companies really prepared digitally to operate faster and smarter. Talk a little bit more about that, about what does that mean exactly, Paul, and, and how do you connect that to $5 trillion of economic growth? Modeling around, you know, the, 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 where, the, where the value of digital comes from. So it's looking at the industries and different industries and how they work and kind of aggregating that, that all together. And that's how we, how we built up this report. I'm happy to send it to any of your listeners. And, and one of the things we found is we, and this was a series of reports that we actually did. Uh, one of the things that we found is that there's a digital achievement gap in that by you know, closing that gap is where you, you unlock the value. So digital, your digital achievement gap talks uh, about the fact that, um, that the top 10% of organizations drive, you know, this is before COVID, drove two times the growth of other organizations of the laggards of other in, in the group. So top 10%, two times performance. And then after COVID, we wanted to go back and, and look at that again and uh, and see what changed, you know, because we said COVID accelerated some things and changed some things. So we just, we're, we're just about to publish the research. So your listeners are gonna hear it here first. I think it's gonna come out just, it's just gonna be published this week, the update to this research, but it showed that the gap widened, the top 10% widened their gap from two times 2x outperformance to 5x uh, in COVID. It intuitively makes sense. If you had the digital commerce, if you had the, you know, the curbside pickup, if you had the, the capabilities that were more digital, you did better. And so the gap widened from 2x to 5x. And then we identified a new category of companies called leapfroggers that use the circumstances of COVID to move faster. There are about 20% of companies that did this. And the, the factors were largely the technology readiness and and that and then the digital readiness that underpinned their companies. So that those that you know you know had already were driving the value, had you know the cloud capability, they had uh, some level of analytics and data capability, and and, and the, the things that were important to driving the success wrapped into the digital model. And that you know that the five trillion is about you know, how do other companies unlock that potential and get to it. Got it. Yeah, it's it's really compelling. You know, let me ask you something, Paul. For all the work that you do and the research that you do. What what are the top, you know, two or three friction points to digital transformation? And, and, and it's a broadly generalized statement. It probably changes industry by industry and that kind of stuff. But just sort of curious as you, you engage, you know, what what, what holds digital transformation back? I, I think it's two things. Um, I, th I think it's um, culture and data. Like if I just... Off the top of my head, that's what I would respond with. Culture was the first thing I think of, but yeah. Yeah, yeah culture being um, starting at the top, you know, I think the some more, the organizations who only appoint a chief digital officer and say, go make digital successful, I think really struggle because digital is not just one person's job or one or even if it's a big organization, one organization's job. Those where the CEO takes ownership and says, you know, that drives the digital strategy and, 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 and propagates that digital culture through the organization and they, it cultivates it you know, bottom up as well. I think those are the companies that, that really are successful with, with, uh, with digital. So there's a cultural element to that. We do, we're do, we do a lot of work in this area. We can have a whole separate discussion just on this. Uh, but, but then I would, I would say data is such a difficult issue for companies right now because 
to drive a lot of the digital things you want to do, you know, to drive more value for customers, you want you know, more personalized information from your customers, which is locked in different systems, or you want to have new sensors in your in your factories and what have you to get real-time information. How do you get that back and process it in real-time, or do you process it at the edge, or what do you do? And um, uh, it could go on and on, and you know, the companies have different divisions, and the, the divisions all have their own data, no, no agreement on source of the truth. It's been an issue for a long time, but it hasn't been a mission critical business impairing issue. Data is now that. So I think the another key key thing we're seeing is that most companies, you know, as I would say most companies are still struggling to get that right. You know, the majority haven't gotten the data sorted out right, and that's standing in the way of their progress. And those that are getting it right is linked to what I said earlier, very top-down strategic focus on sorting out the data and getting the organization underneath it aligned with the right governance and technology and tools to do it. Yeah, yeah. Really great observations. Well, let, let's segue into how you and I first connected, and and I, I think I shared uh, shared earlier. Um, uh, no joke, uh, human uh, plus machine is has become you know a, a bit of a internal uh, bible, if you will, at thomasnet.com, and it came uh, on our radar at a time where we had radically advanced a series of digital initiatives over an extended period of time. And we're starting to get now to look at really shifting the way that we work profoundly and the kinds of products we could produce and the speed with which we could produce them. And so the timing of it was great. Um, back up just a little bit, what prompted you to write the book? What did you see and what was going on that you saw there? And then I've got a whole series of kind of follow-up that I'd love to zero in on, particularly your insights based on the book for manufacturers about some of the trends that you're seeing that might uh, might be important for them to pay attention to. Yeah, no, it's a great question. Thank you for the, the comments on, on the book, by the way. It's, 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 uh, it was a great experience writing the book and, uh, you know, very, very, uh, very, uh, Everything I do is very much connected into some of the themes in the book. The uh, I would say that I, a passion of mine from my career, starting in, in back in my college days, was the impact of technology on people. And I took a, one particular course. You can get into it if you're interested, but there's one course that changed my whole view and got me kind of set on that path in college. And it was actually something around AI um, at the time. But anyway, so it's always been how people react, how technology changes people and how people react to technology has always been a, a, a deep, deep interest of mine and something I've always been interested in and work we do at Accenture. But then to the book, it's the specifics of, of the book itself. I, I remember the moment I was with my co-author. We had been at a meeting in Cambridge, Massachusetts with uh, one of the universities up there with the, the, the meeting that was convened. It was on artificial intelligence and it was probably 20, it was probably 20, you know, 16 maybe at, the, at this point. And um, we were just discouraged. We went and had a cup of coffee and we we're like, you know, that was just a depressing conversation that what people are talking about isn't at all what we see as the business potential of AI. It was a lot of fear and it was, we can't, you know, it, it, the concerns and, and et cetera. And yes, there's some re really, really, really profound risks and concerns we need to be aware of, but the potential was so great. We thought that that was being left out and uh, without proper balance on that, we felt that the future would be written in the wrong direction, you know, if um, if there wasn't better guidance to the people with you know with money investments, you know, to business leaders, to shape their thinking on it. So we said, let's let's really try to put down what we think the future of it is. And, and my co-author is Jim Wilson, who leads our technology research at, at Accenture. And the two of us kind of put together the, the research in the book, and then uh, we wrote an initial. We did the research project and started the project. We you talked about with fifteen hundred companies. Uh, uh, 
tremendous number of interviews and other things we did. And uh, we wrote an article uh, called The Jobs That AI Will Create, was the provocative title, for MIT Sloan Management Review. And it was the most, uh, it was a well-received article, it was the most downloaded article, I'm told, in, in Sloan uh, Management Review that year. And we said, hey, there's something here, let's really, let's really dive in and spend the time and, and uh, get this right. Well, I think the emphasis being on create versus replace, uh, to your point, I obviously captured a, a lot of people's imagination. Um, our audience, is, is, as you know, Paul, is, is a broad audience across the industrial sector, small, medium, and very large corporations all in the mix. Um, and, and some are probably well down the road, as I mentioned before, with artificial intelligence. Some may not yet be on that journey. Um, with an understanding particularly towards manufacturers uh, in the broadest sense, help demystify AI for our listeners a little bit. And if you could put it into maybe a framework of practical application, as, as I think your book does so beautifully, but talk a little bit about that for those that may be less familiar with AI or might be in that fear-based world you described in your meeting in Cambridge, as opposed to understanding, boy, harnessed correctly, there's, there's a lot of power here. Yeah, I'll, I'll put it in the context. I'll talk about the myths, the imperatives, and then the question we need to solve together <laughs> is what I'll do. So the myths, the myths that we try to dispel in the book are that uh, AI, you know, AI is going to take over the world as one of the myths. Um, this isn't a, a Terminator scenario. It, yeah, it, it makes it, for a great movie, but yeah. It makes, makes for a great movie, but we, I believe that's just a misleading narrative. I, interesting, by the way, that uh, we're at it's the 100 year anniversary of a book by Carl Kapech um, uh, that, uh, that um, Rosum's Universal Robots, R-U-R, -R was a play actually, Rosum's Universal Robots, where the name, ro the, the term robot was invented. And it was a book about robots taking over the human race. <laughs> so the term robot literally came from a play, came from a play 100 years ago. And, uh, and it, it just started this momentum about this fear. Um, and so this fear is 100 years old, you know, at this point, at least. The, um, that's one myth. The second myth is that, uh, is that AI is going to take away all the jobs. And I'll, I'll get more into that. But those are what we believe the myths are. The imperatives are really three things. We think that the, the path through this is to really reimagine the way you do business to use AI in a way that uh, really enhances your business and in, augments human capability. So we talk about reimagining business. I'll give you an example in a minute. I'll come back to it. Um, the sec but just to get through, through the three imperatives, the second imperative is uh, around this idea of, of thinking about jobs differently. And we talk about a concept in the book, I think it's on page eight, if I remember correctly, called, uh, there's a diagram, it's called the missing middle, and it's, I believe, one of the most important parts of the book. And it describes the new types of jobs that AI will create and why you need to think about job classifications and jobs differently. And we've seen tremendous evidence of this playing out since we, we wrote the book. Uh, so you need to think about the jobs differently. And then the third imperative is that you need to think about responsible AI because yes, a AI itself is neutral. AI isn't good or bad, uh, but AI can, it can be used to do bad things if trained on bad data, if used by, if used naively, et cetera, it can be, uh, so we, we laid out, we, we laid out the principles of responsible AI in the book to make sure that it's fair, it's transparent, it's not biased or discriminatory by race or gender, a variety of things that you often read about. It's very possible to use AI in ways that are responsible, but it takes the right effort and practices and policies and engineering to do it. So those are the three imperatives. And then the one uh, thing we have to work on together is the reskilling, because for everything I just said about reimagining your business and jobs, 
the jobs that will be created in this missing middle do look different than the jobs of today. And the question is, are we all reskilling people fast enough for the jobs of the future? I'm not talking about training them in IT, they're not becoming AI engineers, but you need to work differently. The example I'll give to tie this all together is, um, is a client we worked with in the, in the energy industry. And it was um, a drilling example in this case, you know, going from an old drilling example to a, a digital, uh, digital equipped oil field, you know, or energy you know, services uh, in this case. So think about gamifying the drilling process, taking all the information coming out of the drill bit in real time, creating a, like in a game, creating a, an illustration of what's really happening beneath the ground, what's the torque and tension and uh, pressures and everything so that the operator sees that information can, can react in real time rather than rather than getting data you know drill bit breaks you pull it out you, you get you get the information after the fact and do the analysis so it's an example of the job changing so the per the person you know the technician is now not just physically operating equipment they're learning to digitally engage with the process in real time and operate it more effectively different skills but you they need the all the physical skills the technician skills they have but they also need a set of digital skills that's an example of the reimagined process working differently driving business benefit it's an example of a new type of job we have a name for that it's one of the fusion jobs we talk about we, we talk about that uh, being, you know, being one of these new missing middle jobs and it's an example of why the re, you know the reskilling is, is really important to to build the new skills one of the points we made in the book that i still make is the, the reason that the reskilling is important is is uh when I talk to companies, they all acknowledge the need for these new skills. And when I, and my next comment is, you're not going to find these on Monster.com or the Help Wanted ads or wherever you're going to look. The only way these jobs are going to come out come about is if you create them, because they don't. These skills don't exist now. So your ability to this, strategically, you're going to be advantaged by your learning capability, your ability to shape these jobs and, and reskill the people you have to do these jobs, because you know that we're, we're creating you're creating new new things that don't exist. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Thomas Industry Update podcast. To hear the rest of my conversation with Paul Doherty, check out the extended video cut now available on YouTube and linked in the show notes of today's podcast.